one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 605 for the week of Monday, February 11th, 2014. I'm um, Sawyer Rosenstein, and boy, do we have a loaded panel tonight. It's going to take me a while to get through all the names here, so bear with me. Welcome, Mark Ratterman. The first and the last. Good to be here, Sawyer. Exactly. It's just Mark and I running the ship tonight, so if it runs aground, you'll know why, but... It won't be just Mark and I for the entire show. Mark has an interview, which he will be playing for us towards the end of the episode. But before we do that, we weren't on the air last week, and there is a lot of news to cover. Obviously, the big story, if you've been following Twitter, is an article that was posted. However, we are going to be saving that for next week when we can have a full panel discussion, as well as we know that we have some listener letters to get to, and we've been bad about those. So we'll get to those as well next time we all get together. But for now, to start things off, I'm going to give it off to Mark, who's got a couple of stories. Well, first, I've got an IOU to take care of. This goes back to October, when I saw something that was coming up that really intrigued me, and it sounded like some something really good to watch. Problem is, it was going to be a video released on YouTube that I didn't know when it was going to come out. So I said I'd let you know, and here it is. This is about the Chelyabinsk meteor that we talked about several times last year that came to good old planet Earth over Russia and caused considerable damage and harm. And there was a lecture. It was part of the Silicon Valley Astronomy Lectures. The title of his talk was, Can We Survive a Bigger Impact? And this was Dr. David Morrison from the SETI Institute and NASA Ames Research Center. This particular lecture had some really interesting points to think about what size asteroid would you evacuate or would you go to watch it's a good hour actually it's around an hour there's part of it that's question and answer but the interesting part to me was dr morrison speaking and uh, give it a listen so just go to youtube search for sv astronomy lectures that's all one string but silicon valley astronomy lectures series and you will see their last one that they came out with about two months ago is this Chelyabinsk meteor can we survive a bigger impact now I'd like to tag on to that with another YouTube video that I found extremely worth the time to watch and it's a 56 minute video by NASA on their YouTube channel and the title of it is the 2013 astronaut class talks stem at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum during this discussion, all all eight of the 2013 uh, astronaut candidates were there, and they were they also had some uh, live uh, interaction between 
the astronauts on board the International Space Station and the group there at the Smithsonian. So you had Leland Melvin, who was kind of emceeing the event, plus the eight 2013 ASCANs, plus two in orbit. So it was quite an interesting collection, and they were taking questions from the kids, and they were also talking about their own background. In the case of the 2013 astronaut candidate class, they're talking about where they came from and what they did before. And there was one that I would encourage you to watch this video to to hear this part, and it was the astronaut candidate, a young woman named Anne McLean, and she has the most phenomenal answer to how do you do these really difficult things that you're not sure if you can be successful at. How do you do it? And she gives an absolute world-class gold medal answer to that question. She talks about it in a way that I think will change you, and it will change how you look at, gee, what can I do? And I encourage you to look for that video. It's on the NASA YouTube channel. It came out January 30th, and it's worth your 56 minutes, I promise. I, I still love her Twitter handle, Astro Animal. And I know we were talking earlier, and you said that she is one of the ASCANs to follow, right? Yes, there's a few of them that I've stumbled across on Twitter. Uh, there's probably more. I, I, I don't spend as much time there as I would like. I miss a ton of, of good content there. And um, I should also add in with the first one, with the Chelyabinsk. We're coming up on the anniversary of that. In fact, I believe that's the 15th. And uh, with the Winter Olympics going on, it's worth noting, once again, that all of the gold medal winners on the 15th will get a medal with a piece of the Chelyabinsk meteorite in it. So I think that's worth mentioning with the Olympics and with the anniversary coming up. And with that anniversary coming up, go and watch the video. All right, and with that, it's going to be a slightly different format than you're used to on this episode. Uh, it's going to be two and two, so Mark has his two stories there, and I'm going to start off with two now to finish off the first round. To start it off, what do Google and NASA have in common? Well, you could think of a lot of connections there, but what if I change the question? What would Google want with a NASA hangar? That seems a little bit more of a bizarre question, right? Well... NASA and the U.S. General Services Administration have selected a new person to take over one of their hangars at Moffett Federal Airfield, which is currently managed by NASA Ames. The winner of that contract is Planetary Ventures LLC, which has a connection to Google. And there's your answer. So basically, they've been trying to find a way for someone to actually take this hangar and be able to use it, and they recently selected this company. So basically, they're hoping in their request for proposal, they're seeking a tenant to operate, manage, and maintain the station to support ongoing government needs while achieving the following key goals. And this is from a NASA press release. It will, quote, rehabilitate and maintain the historic integrity of Hangar 1 in the Shenandoah Plaza Historic District, will eliminate NASA's operating and maintenance costs, It'll leverage the expertise of the real estate industry to reposition the airfield as a viable asset to support government and controlled public and private operations, conform with the 2002 NASA Ames Development Plan, and provide financial proceeds and best value to the government through an open public competition. So what exactly they'll be doing with it, we don't know. They're still in the process of negotiating the lease terms. This is going to be pretty cool to see them uh, take this hangar and Part of their plans in the meantime will have them reskin and protect the hangar, 
rehabilitate historic hangars two and three, upgrade the golf course. Uh, I don't know on that one. Create a public use educational facility, eliminate NASA's operation and maintenance costs, and operate the airfield in accordance with programmatic environmental impact statement and complying with the course with security and airfield management requirements. But I do find it interesting that you have a Google company, Planetary Ventures, taking a historic NASA airfield hangar and modifying it for we don't know what yet. But it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that and see what they do with it. Sort of one thing I've got an appreciation for is working around airports for my adult life and career with the FAA is that airports take up a lot of real estate. They're not cheap to run. And when an airport operator or administrator, whoever the authority is that, that controls that and has to be fiscally responsible, when they can find a way to get utilization from a facility and to increase its visibility in the community, uh, those are all good, good things for for the airport operator. And when you've got somebody that's going to be a... Uh, you know, responsible for the historic aspect of a place, you know, that's an additional bonus. I think it's going to be a win-win in, in several different directions, so I'm glad to hear it. I should add that this deal comes alongside existing arrangements to build a Google research and development facility as well as to park Google executives' fleet of private jets there. So that might be a connection. So in addition to that, we're going to stick with my second story in this one as another NASA story, and this goes towards NASA socials. Now, as you know, NASA's kind of been pushing the bounds a little bit when it comes to their NASA socials. Obviously, their first NASA tweet-ups and socials were one thing. Then we talked about it before that at a SpaceX launch, they allowed the press to include members of social media. Well, they're doing that again for the next SpaceX launch scheduled for March 16th. So if you want to be considered a member of the media just by being a user of social media – Go on to the NASA website, nasa.gov social, and take a look at that and see if you want to register. However, there's another one where they're pushing the boundaries that, unfortunately, it's too late for you to apply to, but I still think it's worth mentioning. And that is the first ever photo-specific NASA social. Obviously, if you're going to a NASA social, you're going to take pictures and tweet it, but this is meant specifically for the Instagram and Flickr aficionados. Uh, as it says, quote, if you know the difference between shutter speed and an f-stop, this NASA social is for you. It is being held at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, and it will allow 15 photo gurus to get together and take pictures of where they built GPM, which is the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, and is the largest satellite ever built and tested at NASA Goddard. The mission is in cooperation with JAXA, Japanese Space Agency, but it'll give participants a chance to get a behind-the-scenes tour of the integration and test facilities to take pictures of it, hear how the engineers came over the difficulties of building such a large satellite, get one-on-one -on -one interactions with scientists, engineers, and leaders, as well as talk to scientists and engineers about designing and building James Webb, as well as the Magnetospheric Multiscale Mission, or MMS, also set to launch in the near future. As I mentioned, registration did close February 6th, but... I think this is pretty cool. The event will be held on February 27th, which coincides with the launch of GPM, scheduled for no earlier than 1.07 p.m. Eastern on, guess when? February 27th of this year. 
like I said, they're really pushing the bounds a little bit and trying something new. First, it's all, you know, tweeting it and all in words, but adding pictures and Instagram and Flickr is going to add a whole new aspect to it, I think. Yeah, and I'll mention again, if anybody missed it or didn't hear this particular episode, but a few months ago when I talked to John Yambrick and Jason Townsend and the social media managers with NASA, they said one of the things that surprised them last year was the really fast growth in the NASA Instagram account. And they said, we wish we had done Instagram sooner. But they had some, I think, half a million subscribers with it only starting sometime last year. So definitely worth paying attention to. Exactly. And to listen back to that conversation, by the way, that's episode 602 with uh, Jason and John. But I thought that that was real interesting, and hopefully you guys found it interesting too. And uh, if they do it again, we'll let you know a little sooner, and hopefully you can sign up. Again, more information on all the NASA socials is available at nasa.gov slash social. With that, that brings us to the end of round number one. So with that, we're going to shoot it off to Mark to start round number two with two more interesting stories, starting with an old favorite with a new name. So if anybody remembers in previous year, the NASA Great Moon Buggy Race that has been held at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, well, that is no more. But in its place, we've got coming up April 10th through 12th of 2014, the NASA Human Exploration Rover Challenge. Now, this is a new engineering design challenge that will focus on NASA's current plan to explore planets, moons, asteroids, and comets, all members of the solar system family. Now, this new Human Exploration Rover Challenge is also going to be held at Marshall at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and the challenge is going to be mainly on designing, constructing, and testing technologies for mobility devices to perform in these different environments. And it's going to provide some valuable experience to students that are interested and in participating in these technologies and concepts. Now, one of the things that I uh, found in looking at the NASA page for the Rover Challenge is that they're going to have prizes for top three winning teams in both high school division and the college university division. They'll have additional awards for the AIAA Telemetry Electronics Award. They'll have a Best Report Award, a Featherweight Award, the Jesco Van Putkammer International Team Award, a System Safety Award, and here's something where you don't have to go and rename a NASA center but they're going to have the Neil Armstrong Best Design Award. So this Exploration Rover Challenge, I think, is a cool event. I would love to go to it sometime. would love to see what the teams are like, because from the videos that I've seen in previous years, it's a pretty high energy and uh, pretty focused bunch of students that are doing this, and they're doing some really interesting things. Yeah, I mean, this is always a fun event. If you've ever watched it and seen the pictures of it, it, it really is cool. And um, no matter what the name is, I'm still going to be watching for it. In early February, NASA announced the fifth round of CubeSat Space Mission Candidates. Now, they've selected 16 small satellites from nine states that are going to fly as auxiliary payload aboard rockets that are planned to launch in 2015, 2016, 2017. These CubeSats come from universities across the country, from a primary school, 
from nonprofit organizations and from NASA field centers. I mentioned this not to give you details about the individual satellites because I haven't looked into it to that depth, but the fact that just a few years ago, I remember on a shuttle mission hearing that there was going to be a CubeSat deployed on orbit by the space shuttle. And I remember thinking, CubeSat, gee, that's interesting. And it really didn't strike me as being common, and maybe I just missed it previously. But here we are with 16 of them they are going to fly in the next three years. And we hear about them frequently with payloads that are part of SpaceX, part of Orbital going up to ISS. I think the fact that they've got something that's small, that small organizations and teams of students can work on is really cool. I'm just impressed that this has become something that really is a significant part of the research that NASA is involved with. It's amazing how far these CubeSats have come. I remember, I think you were the one who first brought it up years ago uh, on the show, talking about these little things, and they've been coming up all over the place. We see them launching on satellites. We see them launching from the space station, from everywhere now, and it's a chance for everyone to get involved with science, and it's brilliant. Yeah, if you want to find out more about it, just do a search for NASA and CubeSat, C-U-B-E-S-A-T. If you don't know anything about CubeSats, definitely worth looking them up because they're cheap and who knows, you may even be able to come up with one yourself, work with a group, work with some students, and get something in space. All right, and so with that, it now comes back to me. And to start things off, I'm going to give a term that isn't necessarily a space term, but you might know it. Mark came close to guessing it earlier, but do you know what a numismatist is? Well, if you are a numismatist, then you might be happy about this, because a new collectible coin has come out. And yes, numismatists collect coins. This new coin was issued by the Monet de Paris, who issues a special Europa set of coins. They've been doing this since 2002, which pay tribute annually to different individuals or events that have factored into European cooperation and construction. And this is coming from CollectSpace.com. Well, this year's newest coin for Europa 2014 celebrates the European Space Agency. That's right. ESA is celebrating essentially 50 years since its creation. It was established in 1964 as the European Launcher Development Organization and the European Space Research Organization, which more than a decade later merged to create the European Space Agency, or ESA. So this is celebrating 50 years of European Space cooperation, as it's being called. On the front side of the coin is the... On the front side of the coin, you can see an Atlas V rocket lifting off, and on the back side is the goddess Europa with her hair strewn with stars and draped with 12 flags, some on their poles on the coin's left. The 12 euro symbols around the goddess's head are intended to symbolize the 12 stars of the European flag. It's available in three different denominations in gold. They are 200, 500, and 5 euro coins, as well as a 10 euro coin offered in silver. Uh, They're limited edition, ranging from a mintage of 500 to 10,000. And if you want to get your hands on one, the most expensive one is about 1,635 euros or $2,230. The cheapest is 57 euros or about 78 US dollars. But I think it's pretty cool that... um, they're recognizing ESA, and it is a really cool-looking coin if you haven't gotten a chance to see it. 
definitely check it out. It's cool looking, and I think it might be worth owning. That's interesting, and I'll be honest, when Sawyer brought up Numistatist, and I'm having trouble even pronouncing it, I forgot about coins, and I was thinking stamps. Oh, well. But yeah, that's cool. Oh, yeah, it really is a cool-looking coin, too. All right, and for me to finish off round number two, uh, it's a little bit of a sad note, but thankfully nobody is dead. However, NASA is going to need a new associate administrator for education, as former astronaut Leland Melvin has announced his retirement. Leland Melvin, as you might know, flew two missions aboard Space Shuttle Atlantis as a mission specialist on both STS-122, which launched in 2008, as well as STS-129, which I know a lot of uh, NASA Twitter participants will remember, which launched back in November of 2009. Now, he's had the position since 2010. And uh, to quote a statement from Charlie Bolden, he said, quote, I am sorry to inform the NASA family that my good friend and our associate administrator for education, Leland Melvin, has decided to retire next month after more than 24 years of NASA service. Since assuming the role of AA in 2010, Leland has streamlined NASA's education organization and portfolio to deliver science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or STEM, content more effectively to educators and students. Using NASA's unique missions, programs, and other agency assets, he has helped cultivate the next generation of explorers, one that is truly inclusive and properly reflects the diverse makeup and talent of this nation's youth and our agency's future, close quote. Which is true. I've met him a few times. Uh, I can think of at least two or three different occasions. And he is an amazing guy. I know Gene and I, if you look back somewhere in our archives, uh, interviewed him back when he first got the position. And he was really cool. And I was talking to him about uh, the fact that he was a former football player. And I saw his football in the Hall of Fame in Ohio. Uh, one that was flown in space. So he had that. And then just when he was with the kids, I saw him a few times talking to kids, and he was just great with them. I mean, he would talk, get down to their level, talk to them in a way that, A, they could understand, but B, wasn't talking down to them. He assumed that all the kids he talking to were really smart and really interested in science and technology and engineering and math. And I think he did a great job of promoting that. And it's going to be sad to see him leave. I agree, Sawyer, and I've got some uh, recollections for the couple years that we've been doing our podcast where uh, I got to be around him as well. And one was the uh, launch tweet up that you mentioned in 2009, and that was being part of a crowd uh, out there alongside the uh, road in front of the VAB and the Astro Band stopping, the door opening. And I believe the chief astronaut was Steve Lindsay at the time and Steve Lindsay getting off and walking over to the uh, launch control complex for the launch STS-129. Of course, that didn't involve actually meeting him because he had a more important date with the shuttle Atlantis on that day. The other time was STS-133. He was there to uh, roll out a participation that NASA had with LEGO on some special Lego kits that were going to the space station and carried on board Discovery. And he made a presentation with uh, one of the higher-ups in the Lego organization, uh, talking to the press. And then later on, the part that was really fun was they had a couple of uh, these El Gigantico air-conditioned tents out on the NASA causeway. And these tents were set up so that school buses full of kids could come out there and the kids could build Lego rockets. 
and there was a big table full of Lego rockets that had been built by the kids that had been through there the previous day and that day that I was there. And while I was there, Leland Melvin came out, and he was crawling around on the floor with kids, picking out parts and uh, talking to kids, and he really engaged the children. And that was something that I thought was just extraordinary because here's an astronaut. Here's a man with some real credentials as an engineer and his training and his accomplishments. And he's realizing the value and importance that the kids right in front of him were. And I think the uh, press, all of us uh, adults that were there, kind of stayed out of the way and uh, let him engage the kids and it was uh, it was fun. I really enjoyed seeing him there. Yeah, I've seen pictures and videos of him, you know, just on the ground playing with Legos. And I mean, how many people can you say are former football players, astronauts, and yet will still get down on the ground and build Legos? I think that's pretty cool. I was mentioning earlier that I had met him. I have an interview that we've never actually aired of his back from the uh, opening of the Space Shuttle Enterprise exhibit in July of 2012. So we're going back a while, but uh, I still think it's interesting to hear him talking about the exhibit. And his essentially, it talks a lot about his views with STEM and science and how the space shuttle that he flew is a great teaching tool. I think it's still worth playing, even though it's a few years later and the exhibit's been open for a while. But with his retirement, Mark, since you're editing this episode, would you mind going ahead and playing that, please? My pleasure. And any conversation that I've ever had with astronauts, it's always good. Exactly. Let's play it. How does it feel seeing it here? It's amazing because I, I think about Enterprise and, and its legacy and what it did to bring on the space shuttle program, which allowed me to find space two times on 122 and 129. So I think the kids that will see this and be inspired and motivated and dream about their next space vehicle, what space vehicle they're going to use to get to Mars, will help set that bit in their head to be those next generation of explorers. So I'm, I'm excited. I think as uh, you know, people were saying in the in the presentation, New York City has millions and millions of visitors each year, and this is one way to show what NASA and the, and the country are doing for space. Not looking at the past, but looking to the future, and this is one bridge to that future. So, as a non-native New Yorker, you're still happy to see it here. Hey, it's all good. <laughs> now, as the head of the education side of NASA, how is it? How do you feel that the Intrepid will play a role? with the education side of it? Well, I think it's a it's a draw. And, you know, when, when people look up underneath these tiles and say that 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit was rejected by these tiles, how does it work? How does the thermodynamics work? You know, what were the loads that were being imparted into that strut there with these wheels and all the physics and the air, you know, aerodynamics and all the things associated with science, technology, engineering, and math are rolled up into this vehicle right here. So if they look at it and then ask the how and the what, that will generate questions that will help them decide on how they're going to be that next generation. So having flown on the shuttle and seeing it now, just are you happy or sad emotion-wise seeing it? Well, I mean, I know that, you know, obviously I love flying in it, but now if we were to revitalize the, the shuttle, we would spend a significant amount of resources and still be relegated to low Earth orbit. So if we're going to leave low Earth orbit in a rocket for the future, this had to be retired so that we can use those resources for that next vehicle. 
So yeah, just from that conversation alone, you can kind of see why we're going to miss Leland Melvin. He was a great guy. He said he only had about five minutes, but he still took the time to chat with me about that. And, um, you know, he, he was a big asset to NASA, and uh, I think a lot of people are going to miss him, but best of luck to him in his retirement, and hopefully they can find someone just as fun to fill his place. Oh, and I've got to throw in one more thing. If anybody wants to send him best wishes on his uh, retirement and his future, on Twitter, he is AstroFlow, A-S-T-R-O underscore F-L-O-W. And I really like his picture on Twitter because it's him in the uh, launch and entry suit, the pumpkin suit. And by his side, he has two dogs that are uh, apparently kind of happy to be there and they must be his best friends or at least one of uh, one of many. <laughs> it is a great picture. All right, so with that, that brings us to the end of round number two. Now, round number three is going to be a little bit of a quickie. These are stories that we had that we think are worth mentioning and for you to look into a little bit more. But um, let's just go ahead and start it off with Mark and one of his favorite organizations, or at least one that employs him. Home Sweet Home, the FAA. On January 13th, there was a press release and Secretary Fox of the U.S. Department of Transportation announced that there were going to be 10 new members of the FAA Management Advisory Council. Now, why is this interesting? Yeah, I'm not really sure. I just ran out of other stuff to talk about. No, 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 I'm kidding. The Management Advisory Council within the FAA advises the FAA on matters of management, Policy, Spending, and Regulatory Matters. Now, one of the new members of this panel is none other than the President and COO of SpaceX, Gwen Shotwell. Can anybody say commercial space? Regulation, which is part of the FAA's domain? I, I suppose she will have some input from her perspective with SpaceX as to things that would be good for the industry. Of course, the FAA is responsible for both safety as well as promoting the different parts of industry that, that they regulate. Exactly. And, and also it is interesting, obviously, they're going to do that, but to you know have people in the commercial space field – Although it doesn't seem like, you know, they're the ones who would specifically be dealing with the FAA. They're more of just flying through the atmosphere, you know, as quick as possible. In eight minutes, they're gone. But it is interesting to have someone, especially Gwen Shotwell, who's a really big name at SpaceX, to have on this panel. And I think having spoken with her before, she will be a great resource to this. And actually, the names that I see that are part of this panel is pretty balanced. They're from industry. They're from both the uh, large aircraft side of things the small planes, private pilots, as well as uh, other organizations that would have some valuable input to the FAA. And that's one of the things that we most need is to learn what are the best ways that we can do things. And uh, this Management Advisory Council is probably going to be part of what will set the future for the FAA in many different directions. And I hope they do a really great job because I appreciate the uh, the good things that we do. And I know it ain't all from one person's idea. It's from a team working together. Exactly, and that's one heck of a team they've got. So uh, we'll see what the FAA does. 
yeah, we're not as popular as NASA, but by the way, I noticed that the FAA is starting to hire air traffic controllers. So if anybody's interested in air traffic control as a career, take a look at the jobs available. I believe it's USA Jobs or FAA.gov or something. But, you know, just look for ATC, FAA, government job, hiring. I think you'll probably find some references that might do you some good if that's something that appeals to you. For my quick little mention, uh, they have announced the 2014 Astronaut Hall of Fame class. This year, they're both very recognizable names, and in fact, one of them is a friend of the show. Friend of the show, Jerry Ross, is one of the two who will be inducted, as well as Shannon Lucid. Uh, a little bit about them in case you didn't know. Lucid was the only female to serve aboard the space station Mir. She's a PhD, and Mir was only one of her five space shuttle flights. Uh, her first mission was in 1985 aboard Space Shuttle Discovery on STS-51G. She also flew on STS-76, which took her to Mir, as well as STS-34 aboard Atlantis, STS-43 aboard Atlantis, and STS-58 aboard Columbia. Afterwards, she became NASA's chief scientist at the headquarters in D.C. and went on to serve as Capcom in Mission Control and retired from NASA in January 2012. Jerry Ross is a retired U.S. Air Force colonel. His first flight was in 1985, STS-61B, aboard Space Shuttle Atlantis. That was his first of his record-setting seven flights, including STS-27 Atlantis, STS-37 Atlantis, STS-55 Columbia, STS-74 with Atlantis, STS-88 aboard Endeavour, which was the first ISS assembly mission, as well as STS-110, uh, which delivered the S-0 truss to the station. Uh, in addition to the launches, he also held the U.S. record for spacewalks with nine, until that was surpassed by uh, Michael Lopez Alegria. And afterwards, he was the chief of vehicle integration test office at Johnson, until he retired in January of 2012, and he is now the author of a book, which you can hear all about in our interview with him last year. Uh, and that, if you want to listen back to it, is episode 506. So two pretty big names are getting their way into the Astronaut Hall of Fame. I'm interested each year to see who the inductees are going to be for the Hall of Fame because it often gives me a chance to focus on an astronaut that I don't necessarily know that much about or in, in some cases have forgotten. Congratulations to this year's inductees. Exactly. Congrats again to Jerry Ross and Shannon Lucid on their induction to the 2014 Astronaut Hall of Fame. All right. Now, to finish things off, we mentioned that Mark would be with a special guest, and I will let him preface this interview. Well, this time on Talking Space, I'm bringing you an interview with the executive director and founder of Rocket Stem Media Foundation, Chase Clark. Now, before anyone skips forward to the next part of this episode, listen just a second. We're not talking boring, humdrum, tedious topics. We're going to talk about inspiring the next generation of explorers. And if John Glenn can fly on the space shuttle at age 77, I certainly think I can be inspired too. So welcome, Chase Clark. Let's talk about rocketstem.org. Thanks. 
Rocket STEM is a nonprofit that we formed in late 2012 for the purpose of, as you said, fostering STEM education as well as promoting the benefits of exploring space. And those are our basic goals right there. I mean, we've got the long-winded answer, but that's basically what it comes down to. The first thing we did was uh, start Rocket STEM magazine, which has content that's geared mostly towards students and teachers. It's definitely at a level parents can read it too, though. It blends a little bit of space history, past, future, present, interviews with astronauts or career path interviews, astronomy, aerospace and astronomy news, museum features from time to time. It varies from issue to issue because we're still young and we're still kind of feeling our way around as to what works and what doesn't work. <laughs> well, speaking of what works, why do all the work? Because, you know, when I've seen your magazines and the website now, it's something that to me must take a phenomenal amount of work. So why are you doing all that? Why You've got a team that's that's part of this, but, but why? Uh, that's a long answer to a big problem. I began to attend space shuttle launches as as media. And the next thing I knew, I was living on the Space Coast for months at a time, witnessing not just the final launches, but the, the rollovers into the VAB, the lift and mates, the rollouts. I ended up climbing up on pad 39A be- just a few weeks before the final launch in 2011. To me personally, that was all, you know, thrilling, great, loved it. But at the same time, I knew I wanted a way to reach a new bigger audience than there is just for space media right now. Not to minimize the greatness that is the ISS, but my generation has really let NASA down and that would not prioritize getting humans beyond LEO once again. We let Congress and the White House chop away at NASA's budget time and time again. Now, John Zeller with Penny for NASA is trying to create a movement to reverse those declines. But I felt it was also important to focus on keeping the next generation from screwing up NASA like mine already has. So he's working on the one end of it. I'm trying to work on the future end of it. Uh, Nearly a year after the final landing of Atlantis, I had a chance to sit aboard Endeavor during one of the final days she was still powered up. And then a week later, I got to see astronauts Mark Kelly, Neil Armstrong, Gene Cernan, and, and others here at the National Naval Aviation Museum during the grand openings of their National Flight Academy. And those two events pretty much galvanized my desire to find a way to excite the kids to love space travel like I do. Now, it took a few more months to think about it, but eventually the idea that became Rocket STEM was crystallized. I reached out to my friends in the media and the space tweet community and soon had a staff eager to join me on this crazy crusade of ours. As you said, we're five issues into the magazine. Our sixth issue will come out sometime during March. We don't have any exact date yet. Truthfully, there is little chance I could have done one issue by myself, much less five without the help of all these volunteers, which extends not just beyond our own staff. NASA has been helpful every time we've needed something from them. Now their space media outlets have allowed us to reprint their content as well from time to time. What are a couple things that were really popular or something that was exciting for you to, to put out? We're still feeling around what's popular enough. As far as what was personally exciting to me was really the first two issues. I mean, obviously I'm more proud of the, the ones now as far as design goes with definitely a stepped up the design with each one a bit. But the, the first issue, I mean, we got Gene Cernan and, and, and Harrison Smith up of Apollo 17 to do, to do phone interviews. And I conducted both of those. So, so to me, that was like, wow, first issue. And I actually got them to call me and do it. And, th- and then after the first issue came out, uh, 
Skylab's Ed Gibson contacted me out of the blue. And then we ended up using him, him in the second issue. So to me, that was like, wow, three Apollo era astronauts right there. Personally, to me, that was great. Are these magazines, I, I download the PDF and look at it uh, from your website. Are they available in print form or was that uh, something that is planned for the future? We did do a very small run of prints of the first three issues. And it just ended up being more cost than it was worth at the time. Eventually, we discussed it over and over if we would like to go to a subscription print model. And that's a path we may yet take. We really don't know yet. We're just kind of feeling it out as the readership grows, and there may be a breaking point where there's enough demand that we'll go ahead and do it. It's a lot more work. I mean, the PDFs now may look like they're printable, but they're really not because you're dealing with the whole, you know, the web 72 DPI and prints 300 DPI, and you're t- dealing with having to get photos in CMYK and RGB and all that great stuff. All, all, all that great technical stuff that just ends up adding more work to the process. Speaking of photos, uh, I couldn't resist. Let's let's talk about the website. Uh, I'm looking at categories that, in going through them, I find lots of interesting content. You've got a category of astronauts where you've got uh, articles written, astronomy, Earth, education, human space flight, the space station, Mars, moon, a uh, category covering people, the solar system, and the universe. And, of course, you know, me, I've never seen an aurora, and I clicked on the uh, the category of astronomy, and there's a gorgeous picture of an aurora and an article about them. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, man, if I was 10 years old, this would be so cool. I, I, know, a, I know a young boy that... You pick a topic, and he says, I want to do this. He would want to go to the sun. He would want to go explore the sun. Let's talk about the website and the categories that you've got there. Um, uh, tell me more. Well, we ended up relaunching the website, which is www.rocketstem.org. Just in the last two or three weeks, it's been. After our, after our first three issues came out, we really came to realize that we had outgrown the original basic WordPress design we had been using. And we spent a few months figuring out exactly what we wanted and what we needed to for a website that would last for at least a year, hopefully two or more. And then late last year, we began the process of performing a major overhaul to it. It's not 100% done. There's still work being done behind the scenes, but our new website does have a number of improvements over the old. It is a responsive design that will look good on both tablets and smartphones too. And most importantly, our new homepage makes it easier for readers to explore by topic or author or, or other ways as opposed to just presenting them by individual issue as we did before. We think the new design will make it much easier for newcomers to the magazine to delve into the back catalog of stories, especially the ones with a timeless quality such as the astronaut interviews or career path interviews and things like that. And I see that you're going to be expanding to have tablet-type content. How is it going to work? How will that work as you bring that in? I've been researching that since before day one, and I still don't fully have an answer for it yet. We've looked at a number of companies that will convert the magazine to tablet format. But when we do it, we don't just want to convert it as a PDF format. We want to be able to add video and interactive graphics and things like that. And we just... We haven't reached a point staffing-wise or cost-wise where we can do it yet. We're hoping this will be the year we do. 
Well, this looks like a good opportunity to talk about the promotion that uh, you hope to have people assist with, and that's the FedEx Small Business Grant. Can you tell us what that's all about and, and how people can help Rocket STEM? Yeah, FedEx, I think they started it last year, and it gives the winner a $25,000 grant. And then I think there are uh, five other winners for one to 5000 as well. And we decided to enter it again this year. I mean, even with an all-volunteer staff producing a free-to-the-world magazine, still apparently costs money, as I've learned, since I'm paying most of the bills. But, but winning this grant would allow us to cover the operational costs as well as present us the ability to expand the content and probably produce the multimedia-enhanced tablet version of it as well. So people can vote from now until the latter part of February to bump you up in the uh, contest with FedEx, right? Right. The FedEx contest is done through Facebook, so anyone with a Facebook account can vote for Rocket STEM once a day through the 23rd of this month. And we've got direct links to our voting page posted on our website as well as on our Facebook page. Well, we'll certainly include those links in our notes for this episode. So, Chase, tell us how we can find out more about Rocket STEM, how we can view your uh, your great media and, uh, and keep up with you, social media, too. Our website's obviously the easiest approach, rocketstem.org. But we're also on Facebook, backslash Rocket STEM, Twitter, at Rocket STEM. We even have Tumblr and Google+. Plus. Uh, we have a LinkedIn page, even. Thank you, Chase. Thanks for joining us and talking about rocketstem.org and... Uh, Many, many great issues ahead. That's our wish for you. Thank you very much. But wait, there's more. I sort of hate doing that, but I wanted to take a minute after talking with Chase and listening to my recording with him to emphasize just a couple of things that I think are really significant. Again, this magazine that that he produces with his team is free to the world. They have an all-volunteer staff, and Rocket STEM is a nonprofit organization. When I look at their website on the header on the tab that I that I see, it says Rocket STEM Magazine, inspiring the next generation of explorers. Now that can only happen if the word gets out that they have this phenomenal product to inspire that next generation. So everyone, please. Find a way to get the word out. And and it's not something you can do just once. It's something that you're going to have to remind your friends and people that you come in contact with. You'll need to remind them periodically. So whether it's Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or Google+, whatever the platform, if it's sending a text message, if it's picking up the phone and talking to somebody, if it's somebody that you meet to -to face-to-face, this sort of reminds me, of when Sawyer and I saw the Atlantis exhibit open at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex and we heard from the CEO tell someone to tell someone to tell someone. Get the word out because you can't inspire that next generation if they don't know about the resources that are there. Also, again, until February 23rd, you can vote to help Rocket STEM win a FedEx small business grant and I think that'll do great things for them, too. So, please, and thank you. Well, of course, thank you, Mark, again, and thank you, Chase, as well, for coming on, and uh, best of luck. Here's hoping they get the grant. They're doing good work. I appreciate uh, the chance to talk with Chase. I guess until next time, I enjoyed uh, chatting with you, Sawyer. (laughs) 
there's always plenty to talk about, that's for sure. Oh, you are not kidding. As you mentioned, that does bring this episode to its conclusion. So it's a little different than usual, but I think we managed to do just fine. And thank you for joining me tonight, Mark Raderman. See you soon. Exactly. We hope to have the whole gang back together again in the very near future, and we hope to have you back with us then. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. <laughs>